Some of the most successful predators in tropical forests are army ants. They send out legions of workers to seek out prey, and those workers totally overwhelm other insects, and sometimes even vertebrates like lizards, frogs, and birds. When I was a graduate student working in Panama, we used to let them walk all over our feet and crawl up our legs so we could have a front row seat to see all the insects fleeing the swarm. But when I tried the same thing with old world army ants in Kenya, boy what a mistake. They're much more aggressive than neotropical ants. While pretty much everything, including Marty, runs away from these things, there is a group of organisms that lives with them and even takes advantage of them. We're talking about rove beetles. They're a huge group of insects. There are roughly as many species of rove beetles as there are species of vertebrates combined. And a handful of these rove beetles have evolved to live with army ants. These ant-loving beetles look a lot like ants, even though other species of rove beetles have basically no resemblance. And some of them even steal pheromones from their hosts so that they smell like ants. The con is so good that the ants let the beetles live in the nest, even though they contribute nothing to the colony. In fact, these beetles eat ant eggs and larvae, all without the ants noticing. Um, but those are really, really aggressive um, ant colonies. But you see how they interact with these beetles and they treat them you know, like, like royalty. They're, they'll groom them, they'll clean them. Um, they're absolutely accepting of these beetles into the in, into the nest. The beetles will gro uh, uh, groom the ants. In the case of the beetle grooming the ant, it's to, st to steal the ant's colony pheromones, these cuticular hydrocarbons that they then smear over themselves to chemically disguise themselves. And they have to keep doing this. They have to keep intimately, you know, interacting physically with the ant to keep this sort of uh, uh, maintain the co the colony odor and cloak themselves. That's Joe Parker. He's a biologist at Caltech who's been collecting rove beetles since he was 16. Now he's studying them to understand a big mystery in biology. Why do living things keep converging on similar solutions to common problems? This concept is called convergent evolution. It refers to examples where distantly related species come to evolve the same kinds of traits. For example, bats, birds, and butterflies have all evolved wings to fly. Deserts in North America are dotted with cactuses, whereas deserts in Africa are home to a group of plants called euphorbia that also have spines and fleshy tissues that store water. Cactuses and euphorbs aren't closely related, but they converged on similar phenotypes for desert life. The process of evolution is so contingent that the paleontologist Stephen Day Gould argued that its outcomes were basically unpredictable. If you could replay the MP3 of life, organisms in this reset world would look and act nothing like those we see today. Rove beetles have evolved to look like ants at least a dozen times, which makes them a great set of species to investigate convergent evolution. The rove beetle family tree makes it seem like maybe evolution is less contingent than Gould thought, and that's what Joe's lab is studying. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. wanted to start by um, kind of setting the stage, the big evolutionary stage. So um, m many of our listeners may know that Stephen Jay Gould had some, well, he wrote many books, many super interesting books. And in Wonderful Life in 1989, he, he made a big deal out of this idea of the contingency of evolution. And, and his thought experiment was, if you could go back in evolutionary time and, and sort of reset the tape, that it would play forward in a highly divergent way from what we actually have seen today. And, and in other words, um, if you replay the tape of life, you get something different every time. And he really emphasized sort of contingency 
over things like repeatability and predictability of, of evolution. So, so what do you think about Stephen Jay Gould's idea and what's the kind of state of the field on, on that thinking? Yeah, I think it's becoming clear that one of Gould's biggest legacies is this notion of contingency and, and really the kind of posing of this question of how predictable biological evolution is. Um, and in his view, any replay of the tape of life would lead evolution down a very different path to the one that we see today. Because in his opinion, evolution is an inherently kind of stochastic process in terms of you know, mutation and environmental variation. But, but why? So that seems like he's emphasizing, you know, the, the origin of variation on which selection can act and de-emphasizing the potential for there to be, you know, very strongly similar selection pressures across different lineages that might shape them to, you know, convergent outcomes or the same, the same outcome, sort of regardless of the starting point. So why, why do you think he emphasized the stochasticity over the, you know, the potentially more predictable parts? Of I, I mean, I, I think in what we know now is that evolution can be highly predictable for exactly those reasons. And so I think, you know, we have all of these cases of convergent evolution where the same kinds of traits have arisen in response to similar selection pressures. So, you know, counter to Gould's view of contingency, there are all of these examples that are, you know, many of them are extremely well studied that have shown that evolution can be a highly predictable process. So there are clades of organisms where similar traits have arisen multiple times over in response to similar selection pressures. So there's clearly some element of kind of determinism or like bias in the evolutionary process. I would say that kind of supporters of Gould would challenge these examples of convergent evolution and say that most of them are evolutionarily pretty young. So we've got things like, you know, three spine stickleback, which show amazing repetitive evolution in terms of, you know, um, uh, phenotypic traits like, you know, uh, the, the skeletal morphology and these sorts of things. Um, but, but those all arose over the last, what, 10 or 15,000 years it, since it, the last question. Exactly. Creation. You know, yeah. you're talking in some of those cases about the same mutation, mutation which is, you know, uh, same element of standing genetic variation that's being mm -hmm. repeatedly selected when these lineages have transitioned from a marine to a freshwater environment. And so it's to some extent unsurprising that in very young clades, at least a subset of lineages would evolve in the, in the sim a similar kind of direction because the starting pool, the, the genome is very similar. Sometimes the, you know, the starting pool of selectable genetic variation is the same. Um, I think supporters of Gould would argue that, you know, this is in the short term, if you were to come back in tens or hundreds of millions of years into the future, even these lineages would have started to diverge from each other. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that, like, the, I think the real question is time. And this is something that I think has not been resolved. There are clearly examples of like highly convergent traits evolving um, sometimes with great frequency within certain clades. Um, you think of these kind of radiations and island ecosystems or lake ecosystems where kind of the sim a similar natural experiment has happened in each case and you've got similar kind of ecomorphs of fish or more yeah. spider morphologies or things like this evolving in these different kind of um, uh, um, yeah. uh, evolutionary replicates. 
Um, we we want to come back and hit this idea of adaptive radiation. It's pretty hard, maybe mm-hmm. after we talk about some yeah. of the details of the, the natural history of your system. But mm-hmm. Marty, did you want to right. jump in? Yeah. Here? So I want to, before we go more into the convergence evolution or, or even adaptive radiation, Joe, do you know of literature that uh, directly addresses the sort of scale at which the contingency is harder to swallow? So, you know, the, the finer levels of variation that we start to think about as you know, for, for the reasons you just articulated is fine, but maybe it's at the levels of phyla mm-hmm. that you sort of, the, the contingency framework makes a lot more sense. And as you narrow things down, you can end up with a sort of convergence happening more oftenly for a lot of the reasons that you. you sure, sure. So, and, and so, the, yeah, I, there's t- t- kind of two answers to this question. So first of all, there are clear examples of convergent traits arising in deep, you know, f- taxa which are widely separated so the evolution of flight you know we Mm. saw in insects pterosaurs birds bats okay these are independent origins where there's really only one solution to that problem and you know given the huge you know richness of animal life they've evolved relatively infrequently and it's always the same kind of solution jet, to jet that propulsion problem. is not an option <laughs> right right there's not really a kind of a metazoan helicopter right like yeah <laughs> it, 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 exactly and so you know uh, evolving to occupy like an a, a, you know aerial niche space you've only, there's a, only kind of one solution to that problem and sure enough there are these four widely divergent lineages which have you know uh, hit upon that s- same kind of solution so you know, uh, you know, fins are another example of this. That convergence at this level is kind of functional evolution of of, of uh, uh, comparable. Sort of one obvious solution. R- 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, and so that clearly are examples of, of 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 convergence at really deep, you know, deep uh, divergences bet- bet- between lineages. Um, I don't know if it helps to think really about. Um, phyla as kind of units of um because they're to some extent you know taxonomic constructs but yeah. there was a really great paper by um uh terry ord a couple of years ago i think it was a 2015 paper where they scanned the literature for all the examples they could find of convergent evolution mm-hmm. and kind of uh, uh um ranked them depending on how old the systems were that they were studying and the drop-off is after you know 10 or 20 million years is, is like this mm-hmm. you know as you go f- f- past you know t- t- 10 or 20 million years there's virtually kind of no examples of really really you know frequently evolving highly convergent co- complex traits and, and most of the really striking examples of convergence that are in that 10, 10 to 20 million your age bracket actually really at the upper end of that so if you know Very tens young. of thousands yeah. to you know a couple of million y- 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 years old I, I wanted to ask uh, your just just thoughts on a an event that I think of as a highly contingent one and this is like you know, almost kind of, you know, pu- public knowledge contingent event. And that is the asteroid impact 66 million years ago that, you know, spelled the demise of, mm-hmm. of the dinosaurs. And I think the, you know, the public perception is that that cleared away a very dominant set of animals and made way for the rise of mammals. The ESC and explosion. Yeah. 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 And, you know, 
there's no way to think about that except as a highly contingent event, right? right? Because yeah. the asteroid might have missed the Earth. <laughs> no, or, you know, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, so so is that an example of the kind of Gouldian contingency over macroevolutionary time that that he had in mind? And I would say that, yeah. I mean, that's environmental stochasticity, it, like you kind know, writ the, large, the, yeah, right? the poster child <laughs> of it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, you know, I, and, and then it becomes a question of there's further questions of contingency, you know, when when there's a mass extinction event and there's a kind of all this unoccupied niche space, how does it get filled? Is that a kind of predictable process? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or, or, you know, if if you were to replay the asteroid event many times, would you still get the emergence of, of, of birds and mammals and, you know, crown group ants? That's mm-hmm. the, the most important event that happened after the dinosaurs were <laughs> Of course. Hey, that's a good segue. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so you have done this amazing set of studies on um, a group of very strongly interacting organisms, so rove beetles, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about rove beetles and their interactions with ants, and in particular, uh, army ants. So can you just lay out the sort of basic natural history of that interaction? Right, so... Uh, um, I think everyone listening to this should know what rove beetles are. They are the largest family in the animal kingdom. There's currently 64,000 described species of rove beetle, the family Staphylinidae. Um, that's about the same size as the entire vertebrate subphylum. So, you know, <laughs> this is, I, 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 and, and, you know, the diversity of rove beetles that remain to be found and described is probably tenfold the number that we know about and so this wow. is a massive wow. massive chunk of the the, the animal tree, tree of life here um, uh, just to give you a kind of picture of what a rove beetle looks like they don't look like typical beetles by and large because they have um, short elytra now elytra are the kind of key innovation that beetles have these hardened wing cases that protect the flight wings in rove beetles, the wing cases are short and they leave the abdominal segments exposed. Um, and the body body is kind of elongate and the abdominal segments are flexible and, and kind of telescope with each other. And this enables these rove beetles to um, move really rapidly to undulate through leaf litter and soil habitats. The majority of species chase down other species of arthropods, so they're predatory beetles. They are very small insects, usually. They're under a centimeter most of the time um but they're fascinating for another reason which is that from this kind of free living solitary predatory um uh kind of ground plan they've repeatedly evolved into highly social organisms capable of infiltrating social insect colonies so in particular ants and termites um and when they do and, this, and your word for that is they're myrmecophiles, right? Or myrmecoid. Yeah. Uh, quick etymological note on an entomological word. Uh, Myrmex is the Greek word for ant. So a myrmecophile is something that loves, or in this case, lives with ants. You'll hear us use that word a few more times. Myrmecophiles or, or termitophiles yeah. are the ones that live uh-huh. in ter- termite colonies. Uh-huh. And these lineages that have transitioned to this kind of symbiotic lifestyle, refer to as a sort of social symbiosis because they behaviorally interact with their kind of social host organisms, they really embody evolution in the extreme where almost every dimension of their phenotype evolves 
um, quite dramatically. So there are changes in the behavior of these beetles. There are often changes in their morphology. So, you know, sometimes they start to mimic their host organisms. Um, there's changes in their chemistry um, where they, you know, are able to synthesize and secrete behavior manipulating compounds that suppress antigression so the beetles can gain what we refer to as kind of social integration, the acceptance inside um, ant colonies. Um, so it's a really dramatic kind of ecological um, and evolutionary transition. And it's happened over and over and over again in this one group of rove beetles that, uh, that I study. Can I ask a, a sort of logic question about how you deduce the fact of multiple independent evolutions of these, mm -hmm. these beetle lineages? And, and just to lay it out for the, for the listener, I, you, know, you can imagine sort of two ways that you might get the diversity of, of beetles that you see that are myrmecophilus, right? And one is that there was a single evolutionary origin of that, that kind of lifestyle. And then there was a big radiation of, of rove beetles from that ancestral lineage. And the alternative is that it evolved multiple times. And just, just from, from a sort of macroevolutionary and comparative context, how do you distinguish those two ideas? So what we did was collect these beetles from these horrible army ant colonies um, <laughs> and collect a lot of other um, rove beetle species which did, did not live with ants or did not live with army ants, um, sequenced several loci, so several different genes from these beetles and reconstructed an evolutionary tree. And, it, you know, I wish I could, you know, the listeners can actually see this tree because what you see yeah, is this kind of audio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's this kind of forest of black, you know, black lineages, which are kind of you imagine all of these lineages of just free living kind of generalist predatory beetles that have the typical rove beetle body plan. You can ima kind of imagine this kind of backbone of the tree. We can color all of those lineages black, right? And then sprinkled amongst this kind of forest of black branches, everything's there are all of these independent uh, transitions where the branches have become, let's just say, orange, for example. So you see all of these orange little branches popping up across the, the, the phylogeny. And these are all these independent evolutionary instances of these myrmecoi, these ant-mimicking uh, army ant myrmecophiles, um, each of which has a similar morphology and similar set of, set of behaviors. And so you can infer... Um, statistically, that you know the ancestral condition was free living, you know typical rove beetle morphology, and from this kind of ancestral starting condition, which is the majority of the sixteen thousand species of Aliocarini, there have been at least twelve, and maybe you know a couple of dozen mm -hmm. independent evolutionary transitions to, to life inside mm -hmm. ant colonies. And, and just to be clear, the the alternative, if they had all evolved from a single ancestral lineage, they would have all, all of those orange lineages would be clustered together with a single common being dispersed ancestor. across yeah, the tree. Yeah. yeah. And so historically, taxonomists had put most of these lineages into one tribe. Uh, so uh, army ants are the subfamily Dorylini. Um, the Dorylamimini were the Doraline ant mimics. And so mm -hmm. uh, this... Uh, kind of deity of Aliocarine taxonomy and systematics, Charles Seavers created this tribe that dumped all these crazy ant mimics into it and was yeah, like... Because they all share that trait. Yeah, yeah. So they must kind of all each other's closest relatives. Threw his right? hands up. He was like, yeah. well, you know, I'm going <laughs> to... The best I can do is kind of lump them together because they're all so anatomically modified. It's hard to find traits that kind of unite them. Um, he did his best to kind of do that, but it was obviously kind of not real 
you know, they were <laughs> completely unrelated to each other. And really, every different army ant genus has evolved, it has sort of picked up its own lineage, in some cases, multiple lineages of these beetles that uh, uh, parasitize it. So really nothing is, is, uh, has not succumbed to these beetles and this uh, kind of egomorph that they've repeatedly evolved. Uh, just just a couple natural history questions first. So, so to a casual observer, would would you if you saw a rove beetle, would you think it was an ant? I mean, do they look that similar? I'm too far gone to. See well, you're not the same. casual yeah, observer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about. Like, I, I can't. Know, like, I, that's I, I, I so I, I can only go on what uh, I the response I get when I show. <laughs> people a, a drawer of specimen rove beetle specimens so the first thing is oh no my, i want to see the beetles oh, oh, Don't show yeah me yeah, the yeah. Ants, huh? so first of all is oh my god they're so tiny how can you even see that <laughs> uh, and secondly oh they really do look like ants don't they and i i kind of don't agree with that so when they when they evolve to look like ants they can really look like ants um but the ones that you know have not evolve that kind of morphological mimicry to me uh, are, are, are quite distinct that said i think compared to a lot of other beetles they're a little bit more ant-like so their body plans probably fewer steps removed from ant-like than most other beetles and i think this is again a kind of maybe one of the predisposing factors that these beetles have which has enabled them to quite readily and convergently evolve ant-like morphology Hmm. And remind us how uh, separated are the last beetle and ant ancestor? So um, this can evolve relatively rapidly. So hmm. it, it just in a, f a few million years, basically the stem lineage between free living and like the ultimate manifestation of, of, of Myrmecophily was 11 million years. We uh, published a couple of years ago, actually 2014, so a few more years, years ago than that, um, a, a transitional fossil uh, myrmecophile, um, which marks a kind of, I don't want to use missing link, but it almost is the perfect <laughs> opportunity to use that phrase because it really does embody <laughs> just, this. Just go for it. Yeah, yeah, let's just go, let's go yeah, for it. It's, it is the tictalic of myrmecophiles. There it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's got, uh, you know, all, f you know, five of its six legs in an ant colony. Um, it... <laughs> Uh, it, uh, and it embodies this kind of transitional phase between a free-living ancestor and a, like a highly socially integrated, obligate kind of social symbiotic myrmecophile. Um, and we could use this to kind of calibrate the um, phylogeny, the date of phylogenetic tree of, of, of this particular um, radiation of these uh, myrmecophiles. I just wanted to ask here too, um, you talked a lot about the... You know, different ways that they're interacting um but what are the beetles getting from the ant colonies and right and, you know i'm sure one of the answers is food possibly protection both yeah can, all can you of talk the, about all, so, all so, so what above. are the resources they're getting yeah so so you, you the, um so rove beetles are, are ancestrally predatory right they're these free living ge generous predators and at the most fundamental level all myrmecophiles are, are like extremely specialized predators which are targeting resources inside ant colonies. So they feed on the brood, sometimes uh, so the ant eggs and larvae. Um, they uh, uh, sometimes- so, so they're slipping off and eating ant babies. Exactly, and, yeah. And, and the ants don't notice. They don't, they, don't, they don't notice. Sometimes they're like fully complicit in the whole thing. Um, it, it, uh, <laughs> sometimes they yeah, pick you, off- Yeah, you had written that they, the ants pick up the beetles and move them 
to their brains. Oh, uh, right? absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So in, oh, that's amazing. In, 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 in multiple cases, it's the kind of relationship so far gone and the Beatles so good at tricking the ant that the ants will pick the Beatles up, carry them inside the nest. Um, sometimes they'll deposit them right in the brood galleries where they'll just start munching on the eggs. <laughs> wow, smart, the, smart. The, the, in, in some cases, the beetles are fed trophallactically mouth-to-mouth by the ants as if they were just nest mates or larvae or something like this. And, uh, and do wow. they antennate the ants to get them to do that? Yeah, yeah. And so there's all this kind of... They've broken their like, rogatory code and, and, and tricked them to do, to do this. Um, in some cases, the beetle will lay its eggs in the brood galleries and the larvae hatch out and secrete a chemical that instructs the worker ants to feed the beetles larvae preferentially over their own larvae so it's like amazing kind of brood parasitism that these these beetles are able to to to, to carry out um so yeah they are and they're absolutely freeloading social parasites that you know infiltrate ant colonies contribute essentially nothing to, to the life of the colony can can I ask you a little bit uh, the the sort of other side of the natural history? H- how do the the beetles not die? I can't imagine. And I and I talked on our last episode about my stupid encounter with army ants, my own personal encounter. Um, I'm not going to recount that again. Um, but I can envision a worst kind of place to be <laughs> yeah tell me about it i mean I, I collect these beetles right so well, I know that was for... my next question yeah. Joe. how do you get these beetles <laughs> yeah so uh, <laughs> you couldn't pick a crazier thing no no no. yeah i mean you just it, it it's it's so first of all it's totally worth it right like you, you, you <laughs> says you no no like all of the stings and bites to find that tiny thing walking around, that magical thing inside the net, it's just you instantly forget about the pain. Um, uh, some <laughs> forget the anaphylaxis, I'm fine. I've yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, exactly. You just won't feel anything once you. Yeah. Um, uh, and and so yeah, they're really highly aggressive co- colonies of ants in some cases. Um, Art mentioned that they have infiltrated army ant colonies, and this we had uh, published a paper on this. Uh, in 2017 they've repeatedly evolved to live inside army ant colonies um and this kind of is one of the most extreme manifestations of this socially parasitic uh uh uh, phenomenon because in these cases they've evolved to look like the ants and i don't think it's that they're kind of visually mimicking the ants to to fool because the ants are basically blind right Mm. what we think is happening is that army ants use a lot of tactile nest mate recognition they're constantly kind of um, much more than other species of ants, always kind of, you know, antenating each other, licking each other. And they do this to the beetles too. And I think this is what selects for the ant-like shape so the beetle mm-hmm. can pass tactile assessment inside these colonies. Often mm-hmm. the beetle and the ant are totally different color, but the beetle is ant, an ant, ant enough, like, in form to uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, integrate into, in, in, into the nest. Um, but those are really, really aggressive um, ant colonies. But you see how they interact with these beetles, and they treat them, you know, like like royalty. They they'll groom them, they'll clean them. Um, they're absolutely accepting of these beetles into the in, into the nest. The beetles will groom, uh, groom the ants. In the case of the beetle grooming the ant, it's to, st- to steal the ants colony pheromones these cuticular hydrocarbons Mm -hmm. that they then smear over themselves to chemically disguise themselves and they have to keep doing this they have to keep intimately you know interacting physically with the ant to keep this sort of uh uh, maintain the colony odor and cloak themselves 
So, uh, so, so you've talked about this gland that the beetles have, and, and they use that to produce chemicals that subdue aggression by the ants. But so, so the beetles are not producing any of their own cuticular pheromones. They're, they're getting all or, of those or, from or, the ants. Or very little. Right? So this is one of the things we're studying in my lab. We, uh, one of the um, species we work on is one of these grooming species, which um, actually walks on top of ants. It seems to sort of chemically subdue the ant, so the ant looks like it's almost gone to sleep. It'll walk on top of the ant, bite onto the ant's long first antennal segment, and that enables the beetle to kind of anchor itself there on top of the ant's body. And then it's got these specialized feet with these brushes on them um, that it uses to scrape against the ant's body, and then it smears the pheromones <laughs> over itself. And so you get this perfect match of cuticular hydrocarbons um, if you take the beetle and the ant away from each other and like profile them using gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, you see peak for peak. You can't tell them apart. You, can, you no. basically can't tell them apart. No. Um, and so the beetles have to do this all the time. They, they, they spend you know, hours. Cup of coffee in the morning and then go groom. Yeah, yeah. Ants. It's time for another groom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so one of the things that we, we've done is we've put synthetic cuticular hydrocarbons on the ant and you see them being transferred onto the beetle. And we've also looked at the um, carbon-13 isotopic signature of these specific cuticular hydrocarbons. And that tells you for definite if they're coming from the same source or not. And, 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 and they appear to be. So I don't think in this case the beetle's making any of its own cuticular hydrocarbons. It's stealing, hmm. we think, all of them from, from the ant. Um, there are other cases where, that, including another species that we study in lab, that where the beetle synthesizes its own cuticular hydrocarbons um, it's a kind of rough approximation for um, the kind of general profile that these ant colonies um, are, are producing. Um, but the beetles can detect this, the, the ants can detect this beetle quite quite quickly. If, you know, if they graze their antennae against it, maybe it passes for an ant. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but if they actually antenate it, so they start tapping it, they recognize instantly it's, it, 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 it's not an ant. And what happens in those cases is the beetle flips its body around and like secretes this appeasement compound from what we think is the <laughs> hindgut. The ants kind of gobble up and find really yummy and don't attack the beetle. And so the beetle kind of wanders <laughs> off. Um, so the, this beetle is not as socially integrated. It's not grooming. It's not physically interacting. And this beetle lives uh, more on the periphery of the nest. And so I think to gain access to the deeper parts of the colony, like the groomer beetles actually found in the brood chambers and deep in, inside the nest, this one has to have the, the exact profile of the, of the colony. And really the only way to do that is through physically stealing it from your hosts. So yeah, many right. of these super specialized, like the ones that live with army ants, the one that we study in the lab with, that lives with um, velvety tree ants, they are physically interacting, grooming with the ants. Uh, grooming the ants to, to, to actually take physically take the colony odor. There's too much cool stuff here, Joe. I'm sorry. I've got to ask you one more <laughs> natural history kind of ecology question that weirdly never came to my brain, and I don't remember reading, nor did we talk about earlier. Mm -hmm. How many individual beetles of the same species are in a nest, and do they battle? Do they fight each other? This is uh, something that I'm really interested in, which is the population control of these exactly, beetles inside yeah. colonies. So you have to think of the ant colony as a kind of super organism in many cases. Um, you know, this is a collective of individuals that are kind of, you know, working together. And the uh, infiltration of a colony by one of these beetle or species of this, these beetles is, you know, it's effectively a sort of social pathogen infecting that super organism. 
Um, and I think the same sorts of like, you know, uh, epidemiological phenomena apply to these beetles, much the same the, the way that they would, you know, unicellular pathogens and parasites mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, infecting po- populations of individuals. And it, what seems to be the case is that as the beetles become kind of more specialized and socially integrated, their abundance goes down um, and their pathogenicity, I think, it, the you know, the cumulative pathogenicity of the beetles inside the colonies also seems to reproduce because just because there's a sort of selection for reduced parasite burden. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think mind blowing is the fact that one of the things we've noticed is that many of these um, highly integrated, socially integrated species, like the species that we study in lab that grooms the velvety tree ants, um, many of these ones that have uh, a myrmecoid ant mimics of uh, uh, army ant colonies. The females, you know, that ab- the, the abdomen of the female, the kind of gaster that, mi- that mimics the ant, if you break it open, there's just one huge egg inside there, right? Mm. And so, you know, it's this transition from like R to K selection, I think, that kind of goes hand in hand with this increasing uh, specialization uh, uh, inside colonies. And so I think the beetles start to invest in smaller numbers of really high quality offspring, um, because they know that you know they've got what it takes to survive inside these colonies, and they do not mm-hmm. want to undermine essentially their hosts. infinite resources, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. And, they, and they don't want to undermine their hosts. Um, they, they lots of these lineages of beetles, they've, their wings have degenerated evolutionarily, so they're not very good at dispersing. But mm-hmm. they are so wedded to their hosts that they have kind of, you know, I think there's been kind of selection to reduce mm-hmm. the impact they have on colonies. Wow. Sort of, well, evolutionary interests are more aligned than they were right. at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, and uh, but and and so the, this can also give kind of niche separation inside the inside the nest between species which are more or less socially integrated. So in colonies of velvety tree ants, we've got the groomer beetle like deep in the nest, producing small numbers of of really high quality offspring. And at the periphery, and actually out, sometimes outside the nest, we've got the other beetle, which still has the like defensive gland. It will it will it will use against non-host ants. It's got this appeasement behavior where you know it, it what's if it gets detected by ants, it like you know squirts out some of this uh, secretion that ants find um, really attractive. This is much less socially integrated. It reaches higher numbers um, mm. uh, 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 around colonies. And I think it's also kind of much more transferable between nests because it makes this kind of approximate cuticular hydrocarbon profile. So this is more mm. down the sort of R end of the spectrum of, of uh, life, yeah. life strategies. Um, and so these beetles are kind of spatially separated because of the different ecological niches inside the same ant colony. Joe, I want to challenge you, in a sense, on whether this phenotype is actually complex. And, I mean, you, you articulated uh, many different ways. I think your answer is yes, based, I mean, you didn't explicitly <laughs> say it, but I'll be surprised if you say no. The reason I'm, I'm challenging you is that somehow the phenotypic complexity of a bullfrog lives in its molecular machinery, right? So you can get a tadpole in a very, very different lifestyle and physiology and morphology behavior mm-hmm. in that organism that when it matures, it becomes a profoundly different thing. Right. So 
that is regulated by, you know, it, it's still a complex process by, by all means, but it's regulated by uh, a relatively, I mean, it's not straightforward and there's a lot of things that we don't know, but we do have some sense of how it happens. Mm-hmm. I get, my question is, do you know anything at the level of molecular processing? I mean, this sort of developmental physiology right. that actually underpins the claim that this is complex or is it equally possible that there are the same sort of modules that are induced in these organisms and it's just an issue of turning them on and kind of the ancestrally they might have, you know, the ancestor of these organisms might have similar things. You mentioned poise for myrmecophily mm-hmm. in, in this taxon generally. And I'm, I'm, you know, sort of want to hear about the molecular manifestations as such. A thing. Right. So you can distill down the evolutionary changes into, you know, several different processes. So one of them is behavioral, right? Primitively, these beetles, the free living beetles, if they interact with an ant, they chemically defend themselves and run in the opposite direction, right? And so Mm -hmm. uh, the beetles have this kind of big chemical defense gland in their abdomen that they, we think is a kind of pre-adaptation for being able to break an ant to ant colonies, you know, keeping the ants at bay by deploying this chemical weapon, feeding on the brood and things inside the inside the nest um, enabling these beetles to fare much better than other insects would if they were to find themselves inside an, an ant colony okay and so two things happen when these beetles make this transition to life inside ant societies their behavior undergoes this reversal where they're no longer fearful of ants they're attracted to them okay and so you have to envisage some change in neural architecture kind of mediating this um, switch in polarity from, you know, fear to to attraction. Um, mm-hmm. And so this involves a change in kind of innate behavior, your innate response of when you are faced with another uh, species of organism, in this, in this case, an ant. And so all of these different lineages have had to have undergone neurobiologically this switch from like mm-hmm. uh, 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 defense and fear to actual attraction and evolve all of these interesting kind of motor programs for grooming um, that their ancestors didn't have, but which ants mm-hmm. do have. And so these mm-hmm. beetles have evolved kind of ant-like behaviors more often than ants have, you know, each independent time <laughs> it's arisen. And so you have to posit um, all of these uh, behavioral changes, uh, the most uh, profound being this, this this behavioral reversal, and so that's right. a quite a complicated change to at- achieve neurobiologically. Um, well, you could, well, can um, I push back a little bit on that one too? I mean, I, I work on parasitism, and mm-hmm. so one of the one of the hallmark examples of a profound behavioral switch within a, a species has to do with infection with toxoplasmosis. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you heard the story about when toxo gets into rodent brains, right. it changes the smell of what's an otherwise mm-hmm. terribly aversive stimulus, cat urine. Mm-hmm. It turns it into something that's actually attractive, and the and the neurological pathway by which that happens is a is a fairly straightforward one. Right. So it is the sort of thing that could be co-opted over and over again by yeah. different lineages. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess I guess your counter argument is that like a behavioral reversal could be mediated by a relatively rudimentary n- n- neurobiological change. The similar, okay. the same circuit sort of exploited over and over again. Even if you get a profound change, because there's an organizational sort of role right. of that particular circuit for a complex syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Behavior. So so I so I I would agree with you, and I would say that the initial switch from like you know you know repressing your kind of innate uh 
uh, uh, defensive behavior, like the impulse to use this defensive gland, you know, it could be easily overridden by, for example, uh, uh, an odor from the correct host ant species or something like this, you know. But to then subsequently evolve all of these other additional behaviors where you're, you know, you're evolving into a much more social organism, you're evolving new ways to interact with another species, often in the kind of language and on the terms of that other species of organism. Those, I think, are, you could argue are not just kind of attraction or repulsion. These are motor programs that you have to install in the brain. Okay. So I think that, that that's where the complexity comes in. I would say that one of the reasons that you get this kind of convergent um, switch towards you know attraction to ants in these beetles may be because that initial switch is kind of rudimentary along the lines of of uh, of, of of what you mentioned for for mm -hmm. you know uh, many other parasites um this is one of the things that we're very interested in in my lab because you know we have we culture one of these beetles in the lab which is it still has its like uh, the classical defense gland but it doesn't use it when it's interacting with its with its actual host stand. If you take this beetle out and put it with a, any other, um, you know, aggressive organism or other ant species, you're kind of back to square one. It behaves like a free living beetle because it mm. uses this, like benzoquinones, these nasty compounds this beetle that pr produces. It uses this defense gland against really everything except its, its true host ant. So we think an odor or chemical, maybe cuticular hydrocarbon blend of the correct host ant species is suppressing this kind of innate uh, urge to to use this chemical defense and instead wow. the beetle selecting this is where the complicated stuff it's selecting this other behavioral program where it's now producing this um uh, appeasement compound that ants find really attractive so not only has it got to suppress you know this like really sort of really primitive defense response it's got to evolve this other you know way of interacting this other kind of motor program i think that's where the complexity comes in wow okay that's fa that's fascinating yeah i don't remember reading that in the, in the papers that we had looked at before that's really cool yeah and and, and you know the, and the other aspect of this um is the chemical evolution so you know the beetle has the fr the free living you know backbone of this phylogeny they produce these benzoquinone compounds um from this abdominal glandular complex that's composed of two different cell types. If you imagine the sort of segmental plates, the tergites on the top of the beetle's abdomen, between segments six and seven, there's usually a bit of intersegmental membrane tissue there, right? But in these beetles, that tissue is invaginated to form a large kind of sac, okay? And the epidermal cells there differentiate as the secretory cell type that make an alkane solvent that fill that gland with the undecane, this uh, uh, mm -hmm. um, solvent. Um, mm -hmm. Behind those, behind that kind of reservoir, there are these additional glandular units that make the benzoquinones. These are these noxious kind of aromatic compounds. Um, but those benzoquinones are solid at room temperature. They're trafficked along ducts from those gland cells and dissolve in the alkane solvent to make this functional defensive secretion. So there's mm -hmm. this kind of synergism between these two different cell types. Um, and it gives these beetles this kind of chemical weaponry to defend themselves against ants and run in the opposite. What happens... In the symbiotic species, is they basically reprogram the chemistry of those cells to make new kinds of compounds. So in some species, they're able to uh, sort of repurpose that gland to make things like you know alarm pheromone, which is much better at disorienting ants uh, if if they're inside colonies. 
What also often happens is that that gland degenerates because they don't need it anymore. They're socially integrated. It's, they no, no longer need to make benzoquinones, but they evolve entirely new glandular systems and entirely new chemistries. We don't know, for the most part, what, what, what most of these compounds are, but they appear to exert really kind of profound behavior manipulating effects on ants. And so, you know, the breakdown and assembly of totally new secretory cell types, because in each case, they're, you know, they're not homologous glandular cell types, they're totally new secretory mm. uh, structures capable of making new, new kinds of compounds. And so that, I think, is a, you know, you have to invoke quite sophisticated genetic and developmental changes to evolve, you know, new uh, exocrine glands with new biosynthetic ca capabilities. And yeah, that is yeah. also happening convergently each time. And this is yeah. not to mention all of the morphological changes which happen. It can often right. be really dramatic down to, you know, fine details of cuticle sculpturation that mimic the ants. So all of this stuff is all happening in parallel in, the, in, the, in these lineages. So I would argue yeah. that each one of those is, is relatively complex. And in totality, it's a highly sophisticated set of changes which are happening convergently yeah okay you get me convinced i'll, I'll accept the complexity <laughs> there <laughs> check check um i wanted to just kind of step back here for a last question and and ask about adaptive radiations more generally so mm -hmm. um i mean you i think you've convinced us that this is one of the more spectacular radiations of animals that that's known in terms of you know total diversity of species mm -hmm. you know adaptive radiations are something that you hear a lot about around biology departments and in biology seminars. And, you know, the idea is you get, for some reason, rapid diversification of a, some pre-existing lineage into, right. into many species that occupy many different niches. So, so, so based on, you know, what, what you've discovered about ants, is there something more general to say about adaptive radiations altogether? So like what, I, what primes lineages for that? I don't know if what we're studying is really an adaptive radiation right because ah. you know it, 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 <laughs> i mean it might be a radiation but not an adaptive yeah, well radiation, it, it, there are adaptive changes but it doesn't many many times that this evolves it doesn't lead to extensive amounts of lineage cladogenesis right so mm. you know uh, the for example these army ant mimics uh, each time it evolves, there are these small clades of like a, a few species, each of which are associated with a single um, army ant species. Army ants themselves are not particularly diverse. You know, I think if army ants did, you know, each you know, each army ant genus that these beetles have evolved upon, if one of those blew up, these beetles would co-speciate with them. Uh, but they just, they, they, they haven't. And so they're sort of these mini... I, could you call them micro radiations? Maybe that doesn't even make sense. But like, but um, it, what what's happened? I think it's better to you know adaptive radiation is the um, you know a, 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 a burst of cladogenesis where all those lineages arise from a, a common ancestor. What you can really think about in this case is it's more the case that you know ants as a kind of ecologically dominant taxon have presented a huge niche space for these beetles to kind of move into and they haven't done it from a single origin and radiated what they've done is there it's convergently convergent infiltration so in totality there's lots of lineages of these rove beetles but they don't come from a single common ancestor i see so mm -hmm. lots of Kind of parallel micro radiation. Right. It, it, yeah, I, I think that's a be better way to think about it. Um, there are examples where um, there appear to have been 
you know, it's elements of like elevated rates of cladogenesis in, in, in myrmecophile beetles. There's a, a group of carabid ground beetles. So this is outside of the Staphylinidae. These are, these are not rove beetles now, um, which are relatively species rich called the Pausini. This is like maybe 600 something species of beetles. Um, and in Madagascar, there's a evidence that these uh, pausine ground beetles have radiated really rapidly. So, you know, approaching the kind of levels that you see in cichlids and this kind of thing, um, in terms of like sp divergence per unit time or whatever the measure is for, you know, frequency of speciation events. Um, and there, you know, I think the kind of model is that these beetles kind of got onto Madagascar um, and kind of radiated into the, all of these kind of unoccupied uh, uh, Fidoli ant colonies. Um, and so, you know, if I think if there's kind of open ant niche space, these beetles can invade it re re relatively quickly. And if there's a single evolutionary instance of it, maybe they can spread quite rapidly be 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 between, um, between host ant species to produce a, effectively a true adaptive radiation. Um, I would say in row these in, in in rove beetles, you know, it's been this kind of these beetles were there from day one. You can go back in the fossil record to the earliest ants, a hundred million years ago, and you can find evidence of like myrmecophiles and also termitophiles in Burmese amber, which records the earliest examples of you know eusocial ants and termites. So I think as ants kind of like radiated and rose to ecological dominance you know most of that's happened in the past 50 million years um these beetles have just always been there kind of opportunistically pick, picking them off and convergently mm. infiltrating them so there's never been is it's, it's more this sort of gradual accrual and convergent infiltration rather than actual adaptive radiation across across ants yeah, Joe. So we often at the end of uh, our podcast ask our guests about uh, just to sort of gaze forward into the future and you know, tell us what what's your sort of biggest, craziest question and biggest, craziest approach to answering it that you, that you can think of, you know, something that might play out over the next five or 10 years. Well, I think I, should, I can tell you what we're trying to do in my lab. So we're using these beetles as a model to understand social and symbiotic evolution, a molecular cellular and neurobiological levels and so what we're doing is you know transforming them into laboratory models with you know genetic and molecular tools um, what we want to be able to do is understand what happens in their brains at the level of neural circuits when they make this transition from free living to symbiotic to really understand the kind of how social evolution happens in the uh, you know in, in the brain um, these beetles have been able to kind of make this transition so many times they're a great model to understand how this might happen um, and so our approach is really to try and engineer these beetles to be able to you know visualize circuit activity when they're interacting with ants this is both in the case of the free living species and the symbiotic ones um, we're also how are you going to look at the circuitry so we're, we're trying to uh, make transgenic beetles using um, transposons and CRISPR uh, my background I took a kind of not really a time out from rove beetles, but I realized I needed to train in a real genetic model organism to be able to kind of realize the potential of rove beetles. So I spent over a decade as a, a Drosophila developmental geneticist. So I trained in a, 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 a 
fly genetics and molecular biology. And that's really the high bar of insect, you know, genetic approaches. Um, and what I'm trying to do now, we've identified species that we can culture in the lab, which have an element of genetic tractability about them. So we can harvest embryos for microinjecting them. Um, we can, uh, you know, um, use like tissue labeling approaches, um, uh, build kind of genetic constructs, the same kinds of tools that people use in Drosophila that we can now bring into these beetles to, you know, do things like, you know, knock in genetically encoded calcium sensors into their brain, tether them to walking balls and image the brain with two photon microscopy when we're introducing, um, you know, ant stimuli to them to see what's happening in the brains awesome. of free living and symbiotic beetles. But the other thing we're very interested in is this question of like, you know, the synthesizing these different chemicals. These beetles are these sort of chemical factories that can produce all sorts of different compounds. You know, the free living species are producing, you know, defensive compounds, are very interested in how they've evolved this capacity to do this. You know, they have these totally novel cell types that other insects don't have that are making things like, you know, alkanes and benzoquinones. And what we've been finding, we, we, we dissect out individual body segments profile them with single cell RNA-seq to look at how these new cell types have been assembled from, you know, much more ancient cell types in the beetle, which are producing things like the cuticular hydrocarbon. So there's kind of evolutionary co-option of enzymatic pathways that these beetles have reassembled into new pathways to make new chemistries. So this kind of cell engineering problem, these beetles are kind of world champions at doing it. Um, and so understanding, you know, the chemical and behavioral basis for this sort of convergent evolutionary change um, at a molecular and cellular level. I think that's where you, you know, this is where the next level of studying convergence, it's not just, you know, looking at genomic sequence data, um, that's never gonna be very satisfying. We wanna actually understand how you get from the genome to the, you know, symbiotic phenotype so many times by studying actually the, you know, the brain and the glandular chemistry of these beetles, at molecular and cellular level. Gould's original thought experiment, we would need a time machine, or another Earth. We would replay the MP3 file and compare how evolution played out in each place. Without a time machine, we'll have to look for clues in the real world. Thanks for listening to the episode today. If you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to the show through Patreon, and you can become a patron at www.patreon.com bigbio. Thanks to Matt Boyce for scripting and producing the episode. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey manage Big Biology's social media feeds, and thanks to Steve Lane for managing our website. We also thank the University of South Florida College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions. 